LVMH is like a 70 company business and it's operates more like a P&G or a Johnson and Johnson. They have brand managers. It's a very specific kind of brand management, but it's very slick. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, April 18th, and today I'm joined by Lauren Sherman for the first time on the pod to talk about the business of fashion. Lauren is the author of Line Sheet, Puck's newest column about the fashion industry, and she's here to explain why this beat is so important for Puck, and to give us some dish on some of the biggest fashion houses in the game. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you got your taxes in on time. If you didn't, you know what? Ask for an extension. It's not hard. I'm joined today by Lauren Sherman, the author of Line Sheet, which is Puck's new newsletter about the business of fashion, fashion journalism. Lauren, welcome to The Powers That Be. This is your first time on the show. How's it going? Where are you? Thanks for having me. I am in Eagle Rock in Los Angeles, California. Okay, I'm in Venice. So we're basically... Uh, it's basically like two hours apart. Yeah, it's, I was going to say like New York and Philadelphia. So I'll never see you. Never. Are you based in LA? We're meeting each other I for am. the first time on this podcast. Yeah, I am. I've been here for like two and a half, three years. It was like COVID transplant from 15 years in New York. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I moved here from New York right before COVID, but not going back. No offense to New York. No. I assume you'll be back a lot because, okay, I am a guy who knows a little bit about fashion. I care about clothes. You'll never catch me out in public after 5 p.m. wearing shorts. A girl I went out mm -hmm. with in Washington, D.C. a long time ago said I was the best dressed straight man in D.C., which is basically like saying you're the best basketball player at chess camp. But yeah. I took it as a compliment. But all that being said, I don't know a lot about fashion. The fashion capitals of the world, I assume, are New York, Milan, Paris. Is, is L.A. part of that conversation? Is that why you're here? I'd say New York, London, Milan, and Paris. Why am I in LA? I'm in LA because it was essentially our version of moving to the suburbs. <laughs> like we didn't want to live in the suburbs, 
but I didn't want to live in New York anymore. We almost moved to Paris. And then we actually spent a lot of time out here. And the fashion industry has a huge presence out here. I'd say it's really the connection with Hollywood and the brands paying for things in Hollywood and that whole celebrity fashion complex is a big deal. And I wanted to write more about that, but also a lot of shoots happen out here. A lot of events, there's just, because there's more space and more creativity, like a lot of really big designers from Europe have own houses here and they spend six months of the year out here. So like, it wasn't ideal. It's not ideal in that I'm calling people at 6 a.m. every morning in Europe. But on the other hand, it's kind of nice. Like there's tons of events out here. There's when people come in, they have time to meet with you. And I was just really ready to leave New York. It would have been better to move to Paris for my job, but I don't speak French. And I spent like six months there in 2019. And it is... I mean, everyone speaks English, but I remember I was in one meeting and the guy was like, could we at least speak Italian? And I was like, no, <laughs> that was that's my, not. That was going to be another question I had. If you cover this beat, do you have to at least know some French or some Italian? It would be really helpful. I took Latin in school, so it's not like I can read everything. But yeah, I've gone to like the LVMH Investor Day and it's in totally in French. And I actually found out recently they do. You can wear a he- headphones and they have an interpreter. But the time I went and I didn't know that. And I was with a colleague and I was like asking her, what did that mean? What did that mean? But yeah, it's it would be helpful, but it's too late. Well, at least it will give me a chance to practice my AP French uh, yeah. accent. When Before you came <laughs> on, I was doing some reading about LVMH and uh, their CEO is Bernard Arnault. So hopefully I get to say that a lot on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you're based in LA, you know, you can cover what Alex Earl wore to Coachella, at least. I think Puck needs a story on that. There's no, um, there's, I, I can guarantee there's not going to be any Coachella coverage in my newsletter for the next two weeks unless something really terrible or awesome happens. But. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So I wanted to ask you before getting into some news and, and buzz out there. Your first line sheet was called Why I Joined Puck. I thought it was really nicely turned and you explained how this beat fits into our larger mission. So can you like explain both your point of view on journalism and fashion journalism? And you put that word in quotes (laughs) in your piece, that phrase in quotes, and then how that sort of eventually segued into joining this Motley crew at Puck. Yeah. So I wanted to be like when I was 14 years old, if someone said, what do you want to be? I would say, I want to be a fashion journalist. I wanted to cover the shows in Europe and work at like W Magazine. Hmm. I didn't even think about the newspapers. I just thought I want to cover the shows for L or W or something. I, I love fashion. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I think even then I knew I liked being a reporter. That's what's interesting to me. And then, you know, when I moved to New York. I had a a job in London after college and I was there for a couple of years and I moved to New York to work in magazines. I wanted to work at like Teen Vogue was a hot magazine at that time. Jane magazine, yeah. These are magazines that don't exist anymore um, or Harper's Bazaar or something. I thought that's what I would do. And then I needed health insurance and got a job at Forbes.com as like an assistant editor and the editors there were really great and were like, you can cover this, but you have to cover it from the business side. And I quickly realized that that was at the time, this is a rapidly consolidating industry and it had just started consolidating like crazy. So before that, it was all family run businesses. They're all still family run, but now they're just consolidated by one or two families or three. And it was just a really 
dynamic time to be covering it from the business side. And I also realized there weren't that many people doing that. So it's like, this is a great way to sort of brand myself as a person who is interested in fashion and likes it, but who is covering the other side of the industry. And I was there for a while. And basically, I've had all these jobs that I go in and out of covering the business side and covering the consumer side and covered consumer a good amount. And it's just not right for me. I just, I really like reporting and you don't do a lot of reporting and consumer. That's what I was going to ask in tech journalism. It happens a lot in politics, which is my world, sports, certainly. So much of the journalism, I'm using air quotes on the Zoom, is like handouts, press releases, ass kissing, source greasing, et cetera. And you can separate the great reporters from the good ones by the people who break stories and don't worry about what the flack is trying yeah, to spin yeah, yeah. you on. Is that is that the case in, in fashion journalism? Yeah, I would say it even goes another step. Most people who are fashion writers, they don't have sources. <laughs> like they don't try to build up and create relationships with people to like get deeper into the story. They love clothes and they want to write about how beautiful clothes are. And there's a value in that, too. And also, like, a lot of them just want to get free shit, which, (laughs) you know what? Good on them. But it just was never for me. I don't know why. I just I think because I started at Forbes and not I didn't come up through the magazine ranks. You know, most of my friends who I started out with covering fashion, like a lot of them work at brands now. They work in PR or whatever. And I really wanted to keep doing this. And I just realized that if I kind of positioned myself as someone who was going to do real reporting, then I was valuable to, I was freelance for a while. And I did a big piece for Marie Claire on fashion MBA startups out of Harvard Business School. Hmm. And then I would do stuff for Fast Company on Glossier or whatever. I like branded myself as this person who could cross between the two worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to do because if you're writing for those glossies to have a good reputation, a more serious business publication can be hard. But yeah, it just I just had to do it and it ended up paying off. Like my last job, I worked at a trade called Business of Fashion, which is new and has only been around for like 10 years. And they wanted to sort of do trade journalism differently. And I just, it's been really nice to like be able to keep doing journalism. And if I hadn't branded myself that way, I don't think I would have. And when I started reading Puck, I was like, oh, this is sort of taking everything I've done and putting it in one place. And I am like a very close watcher of media and not television media. So I don't know that much about a lot of what you all follow and do yourselves. But um, I like skip, I all Dylan, watched, skip all the podcasts that Dylan uh, is on. Those well, I haven't <laughs> I haven't watched um, who's the the guy who's super famous that does the charts and that George Clooney movie was like based on him. That was like the last time I watched cable news. Jim Cramer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh. <laughs> the last time I watched cable news. But um, I am a, a real follower of like business models and how do you make money in journalism and like do good, interesting uh-huh. journalism. And I also just think like most media is not good. It's just serving some sort of, whether it's explainers or long features that aren't really edited. There's just not a lot of, out there that's entertaining and interesting. And I felt like, There are very few places where you think, oh, I could do that and do a good job. And Puck was it. Like, I was like, I want to do this and hopefully they'll be interested. (laughs) Well, I can tell you 
we were, John was, and uh, when you came on board, everyone was really hyped about it. Because it, it was also like a little unexpected, and I said in a positive way, because if you yeah. think about the kind of stuff we cover, you know, there's the business of sports and music and like tech, but this is such an interesting move for us. I, I'm hyped we're doing it. I wanna take a quick break, Lauren, and when I come back, I wanna ask you about some of the actual news in fashion. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life 
Welcome back to the Powers of Brew, everyone. I'm joined by Lauren Sherman on her maiden voyage on the podcast. Before I get into some news and gossip out there, actually, I had one more journalism question for you. Because yeah. I get asked this a lot by like a college age kid or someone in their early 20s trying to get into political journalism. And they ask me like for advice. And I have some, but some doesn't apply anymore. Like, you know, yeah. it's it's been 15 years since I've had to figure that stuff out from the beginning, at least. If you're like interested in fashion, maybe you just want to get free clothes. Maybe you're Emily in Paris or whatever. Like, do you go work at one of those big magazines or are the magazines also dying? Like, what do you what do you do? I wouldn't recommend that personally. <laughs> yeah, no, those magazines are are have very small staffs and are tough. I mean, I would say that's not a good path. It, it can be a good path to getting a great job at a brand where you make way more money. But I'd say that they you are overworked and underdeveloped at those places these days. But actually, I do mentoring at the Savannah College of Art and Design with like fashion, journalism and marketing. Yes, marketing students. And they, a bunch of those kids have reached out to me. And basically I say, it is good to sort of try to find an area of expertise. Like not everyone wants to be a business journalist. They think that numbers are dry or whatever. I think that's wrong, but a lot of people don't. So kind of decide maybe you're really interested in, like there are tons of people who just cover sustainability in fashion or like the idea of quote unquote sustainability, which is like a whole other can of worms, but you could do that or like find an expertise that makes you valuable to a bunch of different outlets, like supply chain. It's that super geeky. But if you were a supply chain reporter in the last two years, like how lucky were you? Mm -hmm. You got so much. So I always say like, try to find an area of interest, or if you're more interested on the cultural side of things, like developing a point of view. And I always tell them to write I had an internship a long time ago and one of the more senior interns or like an assistant or something told me just write every day. And I do think that's really important. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is working on it. And the one thing that I learned, I became a freelancer for like, I don't know, three years when I was 30. And I'd say the biggest thing was just file on time. And if you file pretty clean copy, that's like, you're so far ahead of everyone else that, that, that is just be like available and easy to work with. And that really helps. But if you want to be a fashion journalist, start write a blog or whatever people Substack. That's what people do now. And I tell them to like pitch publications like Refinery29, which do have reporting in them, but that are like more open to junior people. Uh, be easy to work with. Sage advice for anyone in any industry, not just journalism. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about what's going on in Paris right now. Actually, we were talking in the Slack before this with Ben, and he vetoed the idea of talking about French pension reform. <laughs> That's not exactly what we're talking about here. But a few days ago, protesters stormed or at least posted up in front of headquarters of LVMH, which is run by the aforementioned Bernard Arnault, who is now, I think, the wealthiest person in the world, passing Elon Musk. Why there? Why would these angry protesters, there's so many government places, there's many more visible places in Paris, like why did they decide to go there? Because I think that gives a glimpse into the world you cover. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's the biggest company by market cap in France right now. So that's one of the reasons. And the guy, I in my newsletter today, I did this little bit about this Guardian piece. And the guy was like, this one of the protesters, you're looking 
for money to finance pensions, take it from the pockets of billionaires. And so it it's really interesting because it completely underlines what LVMH is to that country. And Bernard Arnault operates more in many ways. I mean, he's very French and they do things in a very French way, but the strategy and tactics are much more American. And he lived in the US in the 1980s. And it was like the time of corporate raiders. And I think he lived next door to one of the most famous corporate raiders in in New York. And he kind of learned a lot from those people about how to operate a business. And now LVMH is like a 70 company business. And it's operates more like a PG or a Johnson and Johnson. They have brand managers. It's a very specific kind of brand management, but it's very slick. And it, he was coming up in America at the time where socialism was sort of taking over France. And so it's this, you know, 30, 40 years later, this sort of intersection of these two things where the way that France operates is changing and it's sort of probably in his benefit. It definitely is in his benefit and he's sort of winning out over that. So I think it is really, it really illustrates what's happening in France right now and the globalization of the world, because like he has a business everywhere. And, and so sure they're based there, but his business is so powerful that what he needs and wants, it's going to take precedence over all the common people and regular people in in France. What are some of the brands that are part of his company? There are so many. It's basically every single fashion brand you've ever heard of, except for a few. But Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Loewe, Givenchy, Celine. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what other... And, and then obviously there's Moet Hennessy. Uh-huh. There are tons of champagnes. They own like every champagne ever. They own... Ugh, it's just they own everything. They even own these tiny little businesses like um, Patou, Jean Patou, which is probably more fragrance. They also own Sephora, which is hugely hugely important. And they just had their results. And here in the US, the sales of luxury goods really shot up at the end of 2020. But then also in 2021, it was just insane. It was like the best year ever for a lot of companies because not only did rich people have a lot of money to spend, but also a lot of people who had jobs and got stimulus checks were spending it on on luxury goods. So it's just crazy. And, and 22 was really good for them too. And this first quarter, a lot of the individual brands have seen sales decline, but Sephora has actually picked up again after having... So we, the portfolio is just so big that like if one brand is sort of not doing so well, they can pick back up. And within Sephora, they incubated, they have an incubation company called Kendo, and that's where they incubated um, Fenty Beauty, Rihanna's thing. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I think a billion or $2 billion alone. They also launched a clothing brand called Fenty for Rihanna that was not successful. The thing that LVMH has not had success in is launching their own brands. He's a good brand manager and he knows how to develop a brand. And now they're the acquisitions they're making, like they paid over $15 billion for Tiffany in, I think it was at the end of 2021. Those kinds of acquisitions, they're not making, they're not, you have to be at least a billion dollar business for them to even think about it. And now it's like five, 10, $15 billion. So they don't have a great track record of launching brands from the ground up, but they are sort of the leaders by 
10 times so much. Like they just are, they're in some ways the only game in town. Uh, real quick before you go, you also write about there's speculation out there that LVMH owned Bulgari could be the landing spot for Alessandro Michele, the former creative director at Gucci. How real is that rumor? You know, the way they responded and they never comment on rumors, they never comment, but they will respond. The way that they responded today, they were like, sorry, we can't help you. I think that it might just be semantics. I don't I'm not trying not to read into it. I had had a lot. It's like what there's always about 25 of these rumors. We published this issue today and I got two. I got a voicemail immediately, a text, three or four emails back about I heard this happen. I heard that happen. And I'd say nine times out of 10, it's not true. There's a huge chance he spoke with them. And the reason I decided to to kind of highlight it is because regardless of whether it's true, there's jewelry, hard jewelry is is a really profitable, interesting business, but there aren't that many branded hard jewelry lines. So like you have Tiffany, you have Balgrave, they're both owned by LVMH. You have Cartier owned by Richemont, which is the best brand and definitely the leader in that category. And then you have Van Cleef and Arpels also owned by Richemont, very good. But there are probably, Boucheron is owned by carrying another LVMH rival. It's smaller, but still interesting. But they've never had, like, all the leather good brands have a star creative director. All the, so Louis Vuitton had Marc Jacobs, then they had Nicola Jasker, and, and now they're going to have Pharrell Williams, and Virgil Abloh obviously was there. So they they always have big brand. Hermes has, not super famous, but Mar- Martin Margiela, who is a really famous designer, was their creative director. Jean-Paul Gaultier was their creative director. Their creative directors now are are really well-respected, but like maybe not as big of names. But just the point being that like leather goods houses have also hired fashion designers, clothing designers to build up the business. And you don't sell as many clothes as you sell handbags and shoes and things like that. But it is a way to sort of burnish the brand and make it feel more interesting to the consumer and or compelling. But jewelry houses have never done that. The Tiffany has a bit, they they had Reed Krakoff, who used to be the creative director at Coach in the US. He They had him for a while. And he is, I'd say, pretty famous, but he's not, you know, European designer level star. And so the reason I pulled this one out of the many that I get sent every single week is I just think it's a really interesting play for Bulgari if if they were to do it, because if they start doing, they already have more brand extensions than most of their competitors. So they have Bulgari hotels, they have Bulgari beauty, they have a handbag line that is like, not terrible. <laughs> um, they have they've done collaborations with other designers, and so if they brought in someone with that, a lot of people know who Alessandro Michele is. He has like a lot of fans and a lot of ardent followers. They could really kind of develop that brand even further in a way, and it will be a big leap. Like no, there's no jewelry brand that makes clothing really, so it it would be a big leap. But it's if anyone has the ability to execute on something like that, it would be LVMH because they were the ones that took these sort of tired leather goods houses and made them into these fashion, global fashion powerhouses. So I I think it's really interesting. And I've already gotten a lot of people just saying, I love that idea. And who knows? I, I mean, 
it maybe it's true, maybe it's not, and you never know until the contract sign. A lot of times, I'm hearing different things up until the minute there's an announcement, and the only person that really knows is Mr. Arno. So we'll see. And I think it's a great prospect for him. He catapulted Gucci onto another level, but that was a burnout job. I was in. Milan in September covering the shows. And I went to this conference that he does after his runway show. And he was just the whole time. He was like, I'm so tired. This job is so hard. I would like to leave this job. And I said to my colleague when we were leaving, I said, that guy's not going to work here anymore for much longer. And and he kind of brushed my comments aside. But two months later, he was out for many reasons. But I think this could be like an interesting creative project for him and a financial boon to Bulgari. Uh, and now I know how to pronounce it, Bulgari. Um, Lauren, I'm going to be learning a lot from you. I know puck readers and listeners to this podcast will as well. Take me on your next trip to Milan with you. Great. Let's uh, go. <laughs> thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.